Well, I hope that you can sing that song in past tense. I was lost, but now I'm found. And if not, then today might be the day you meet Jesus Christ and change your life forever and ever. Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Once again, we're returning to Ecclesiastes to glean from the field of Solomon that, it, that he planted a long time ago for us. And I don't know about you, but there hasn't been a, a passage that we've covered that I haven't, I haven't uh, thought two things. One, Solomon knows me and the world that I, that I live in. He anticipates the questions that I have. And the second thing I think after I've approached Ecclesiastes is Solomon truly is a, a wise man, the wisest man that, that ever lived. He anticipates every question that I see creeping up in my own heart and he provides the answers that we all need in a crooked world. And the topic today will be, will be no different. The reason that Solomon can, can do that is because his wisdom is is God breathes. Solomon speaks to us in our day, even though it was written thousands of years ago, because the Bible is relevant to, to all times. It transcends culture, periods, and peoples. There's truly nothing new under the sun as far as it relates to, to us. And Solomon's wisdom comes from God. It, it was gifted to him from the Lord. You remember how Solomon got his wisdom. It wasn't just by being a Bible scholar. It was supernaturally granted to him by the Lord. Some of you have asked, a number of you, how can we say, how can the Bible say that Solomon was the wisest man when he did so many stupid and sinful things? I mean, what do you, you, you want to... Is it smart to have 700 wives and 300 concubines? I think not. The answer, of course, is that Solomon's wisdom was not self-generated. It was supernaturally granted to him. And Solomon didn't always act on that wisdom himself. He, he's a lot like you. He knew but didn't do. And you know a lot and don't do yourself, right? The wisdom that we want to gain from Solomon is the wisdom from the Lord, or wisdom of the Lord. And God made sure that we don't have to guess which is Solomon's opinion and which is God's wisdom. He wrote it down for us in the Song of Solomon's Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and even some selected Psalms. And that's how we know we're getting God's wisdom poured through the frail vessel of, of Solomon. And today, we're going to gain God's wisdom about how the effects of the curse play out in relationships and loneliness. Solomon has completed five of the ten topics that are particular frustrations in a, in a Genesis 3 world. The world that we live in is crooked and it can't be straightened until God removes the curse, which he's promised to do. But the Lord has given us wisdom to, to lessen the frustration of the fall. In these ten areas, there are things that won't, be, that won't completely go away because the curse is operating, but we can make them better if we apply God's wisdom. And if we don't, we don't heed the wisdom of Solomon, they'll increase our frustration even more. Solomon has covered God's sovereignty, human injustice, death, oppression or abuse, 
and last week the misuse of work. Today, he's going to address loneliness and loving relationships too much. Or as one preacher put it, the frustrations that come from lacking friendship and loving fame. Now, I don't think that this topic should surprise us because Solomon, like last week, Solomon is, is, is dealing with the effects of Genesis 3. And what did the curse affect? I mean, if you, if you remember what God says about the curse, there are two areas that are, that are singled out. One is work. Work was, was a gift from God, but it will be affected by the curse. You're gonna, you're gonna toil. Uh, in thorns and thistles by the sweat of your brow. And then the other thing that the curse affects is relationships, right? Adam was alone and it was not good for him to be alone. But now after the curse, the, uh, the, the man is going to, to want to, to rule and the woman is going to want to rise over. Both of those are effects of the curse. So Solomon gives us particular wisdom of how to deal with the curse. And, and he's going to address... When we have no relationships to share life, or the wrong kind. When we have the longing for them that loneliness brings. Or when we desire them too much and have a penchant for popularity. Now those are some specific areas in the fallen world that bring frustration, don't they? Or aren't they? Bill Barrick, Dr. Bill Barrick said, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4, the frustration comes from no comfort. The oppressed, the abused, they have no comfort, if you remember that from three weeks ago. What we covered last week, there was no rest. The unwise worker finds no rest. And in our passage today, the frustration is centered on no companionship. Verses 7 through 12 in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 is all about the, the reward of companionship and, and what's there when, it, when it's lacking. Solomon says it's better than isolation. He'll show specific instances that we face from the fall or that people face from the fall where two are better than one, hence our, our title. And if you isolate yourself, you'll find the frustration of loneliness. God has designed life in such a way that we need others, regardless of what you think. And Solomon will show us that they bring purpose, they bring profit, they bring precaution, they bring provoking, they bring protection, most of the time. And that's where we'll, we'll end. We'll end with the, the most of the, of the time. So after he shows us the benefits of companionship, which are all those P's there, Solomon says if others are where you look for your ultimate fulfillment and that displaces God, that's going to bring devastation. So the blessing of others, but then also the, the limits that you should, you should place on that. So there are six examples here where two are better than one most of the time. And here they are. In verses 7 and 8, two are better than one for enjoying life's gain. In verse 9, they're better for multiplying life's effectiveness. In verse 10, better for assisting with life's burdens. Verse 11, better for sharing in life's journey. Verse 12, better for battling life's adversaries. 
and verse 13 through 16, but not for replacing God. Now, if you didn't get those down, you'll get them one at a time here, and here's the first one. Having others, Solomon says, is better for enjoying life's gain. Look, if you would, at verse 7. He says, Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother. Yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself? This, too, is vanity and is a grievous task. Solomon transitions to a new topic in his normal fashion. He says, I looked around, I surveyed vanity under the sun. Tremper Longman translated verse 7, I turned and observed an example of meaninglessness. There was a person who was all alone. Is that how you feel? Solomon says you don't have to, and there may be some things that you're doing to increase it. Now, it's always helpful to remind us whenever Solomon does this survey of life, it's, it's life without God. He's limiting his gaze to life under the sun. He's examining the fallen world, and he's forcing us to look at the fallen world apart from God, apart from the blessings of the church, apart from all the things that God has provided, so we will we'll look to Him. We won't find our satisfaction in this life. We'll find the hope that he brings. And here, Solomon looks around and he sees something very frustrating, he says. He sees a person alone who labors without someone to share it. And he declares this is vanity and a wearying life. Now, some commentators miss the connection between these verses and the ones that, that, that follow, the verse 7 and 8, and what, what comes. Because you may miss it too. The New American Standard, I think, it is accurate, but it doesn't help us with the connection. The Hebrew literally says, there is one without a second. The King James nails this verse. There is a certain man, there was one without a second. And the New American Standard applies uh, uh, dependent. There was one without a dependent. Because we're told that's exactly what the Bible's talking about. He says in verse 8, he had neither a son nor a brother. But one without a second. And then look, if you would, at verse 9. Two are better than one. There was one without two. And now two are better than one. That helps us to see how these two things come together. And here is a man that has no family companionship. Or no companionship at all. It's a, sta it's a sad story of someone who, who has no one and it's self-inflicted. That's the point. Look at verse 8. Uh, why does he have, uh, why is he alone? It says that there was no end to all his labor and his eyes were not satisfied with, with riches. We're told why he's alone. This man is a self-made hermit, as one commentator said. He's, a, he's the two-fisted worker from, from last week. He's the lonely miser who has no human relationships. He's a man of pointless busyness. He has no wife, no friends, no church, no companion in business. Joel James compared him to Ebenezer Scrooge, which I thought was appropriate because Christmas is, is upon us. Now, I want you to notice that Solomon keys in here on two things. This man's arduous labor and his aimless life. 
His eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself? So there is arduous labor, and then there's no point to his labor. There's an aimless life. This is someone who spends all of his time working hard to amass things, but never gets joy from them. They have no one to leave the results to when the after their effort is, is gone. They have a lot, but they don't share it. And that's a pretty meaningless life, Solomon says. But it's very common, isn't it? Dwayne Garrett said that this is a person whose money is their only kin. This man worked and he gained and that never satisfied him, so he kept on working and, and what he was missing was a purpose in his gain. The point of the passage comes when Solomon says he doesn't have anyone to, to leave it to, and he never asks the question, what's the point? A brother or a son would have been, would have been two of his, the closest male relations who would have received the inheritance. But this is not a proverb about leaving an inheritance. This is, this is a picture of an aimless life or a life that lacks foresight. It's a person who is selfish, who's self-focused. They're, they're turned inward. Of course, Solomon's not condemning work. He just, he just told us last week to have one hand full, and it's a, it's a blessing. He just warned us not to grab it with both hands. Make sure you leave one open for, for, God's, for God's blessings. And, and, and some of God's blessings is, is, is that full hand of work sprinkles some of the benefit in that open hand, and then that open hand gives it to someone else, and there's joy in that. I mean, you know that. It's better to give than to receive. Solomon says one of the blessings is enjoying gain, your gain, with others. What Solomon is condemning is a life that does not share one's gain. And he says that will lead to purposelessness and loneliness. Solomon says, what good is it to work and gain if if you don't share it with someone? What good is it to have a business plan and work it out and, and then leave God's purposes and others out of that? It, it's a recipe for, for emptiness. And if you do that, you're, you're not going to enjoy what you've made. It, it's going to multiply the frustrations of the fall, and yet people do that all the time. They work, they gain without purpose, and their purpose is selfish, so it doesn't satisfy. And then they wake up one day and think, what? What am I laboring for? What's the purpose to all of this? This is exactly what Solomon is saying here. What's the point? The reason you may not be enjoying the things that you have, whatever things that you have, maybe because you're not using them for the benefit of others. Share what you have. Share what you've gained. And you'll find there's purpose in it. But that's not the only thing a life with others brings. Solomon says it's also better for multiplying life's effectiveness. If you would, at verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return on their labor. Solomon hangs the theme of this entire section on the, on the screen door. He, he puts it like a note there. After showing us the pain and purposelessness of a stingy life, he sets out his theme very plainly, and this is the conclusion. Two are better than one. And then he provides three illustrations that, that prove that. There's a falling man, a freezing man, and then there's a fleeced man. 
There is another better than proverb in, in Ecclesiastes. Right, right here it is. We, we've already had a couple. And, and he, he tells us exactly why. He, he, this is his theme. Two are better than one. Why, Solomon? In verse 9, because they have a good return on their labor. They can accomplish more if they work together. So he says, the benefit of others in your life. Two can multiply each other's effectiveness. They have a good return on their, on their labor. This is not a, pro, a hard proverb to understand. We, we even say it today. Two heads are better than what? One. You all know it. We all know it's easy to get things done with more than one person. Many hands make light work, or many hands on the net, as Pastor Alley used to say. Solomon's point is you might be good, but you'll be even better with the help of someone else. So don't isolate yourself. You may be a wonderful evangelist, but you won't be very good at maturing those disciples apart from the church. Now, if you're here this morning and you're single and you're saying, yes, yes, I, I, I know, I, 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 I know this, I want a companion, I don't have one yet, don't limit Solomon's application here to, to marriage. It's more than marriage. Let me prove that to you. Look at verse 12. If one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. If two are good, three is even better, was Solomon's point. One alone, two together, now three. He's building here. And two are good, three is even better, except in marriage, right? Regardless of what the Mormons say. That's a recipe for disaster. And all the women in here said, amen, I can't put up with one husband, much less two. It's not marriage, but a multiple of others that increases life's effectiveness. It's true. The Bible says those married have a built-in companion. But Paul also says that they have built-in worry and work. Look at 1 Corinthians 7. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord or how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried or Betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how, how to please her husband. The Bible says there's a trade-off in marriage. You gain a built-in companion, but you also gain some anxiety and, and trouble. You give up personal freedom and freedom to serve the Lord, but you gain a, a built-in companion. And so Paul gives his conclusion in 1 Corinthians seven twenty-six. I think, in view of the, of the present distress. What's he talking about, present distress? The fall. In view of life under the curse, a person should remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free for whatever reason, whatever circumstances? Don't seek a wife. Solomon's point, though, is don't be selfish and inwardly focused. By isolating yourself and go it alone, you, you will accomplish less. Be others-minded, not only-minded. If you're married, then be better together for the Lord and serve Him as a couple. You'll get more done than alone. If you're single, serve with others in the body. You'll get more done than alone. Christianity is not a solitary endeavor. And self-focus leads us to set up 
whatever we think is important as the only thing. And Solomon says you won't be effective in that way. But there's an even more pressing reason that two are better than one than, than just effectiveness. Look at the third one here. It's better for assisting with life's burdens. If you would at verse 10. Two are better than one. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls where there is not another to, to lift him up. Now, I had a very practical example of this last night. Um, my wife was out at the grocery store, and I was doing some things at the house. I was by myself, and my heart went out of rhythm. I hadn't done that for probably three years, and jumped up to like 215 beats a minute, and I was trying to pass out. I'm alone. I called her on the phone, told her what happened. We, we kind of know the drill. But then she came home and helped me greatly. I, I couldn't walk. Uh, she, she took me in the bedroom and then gave me everything that I wanted. Of course, I milked that for quite a long time afterwards. But there was a moment where I'm thinking, I'm alone. There's nobody here. If I pass out, which happens, then I have no way of, of, of getting any type of help. And I felt great comfort whatever the door opened and she came in. Solomon presents this first illustration to prove his point that two are better than one. All three of these illustrations have to do with travel in his day. This is someone traveling alone that might fall in a pit or over a hill, and there would be no one to rescue him. And the point is, we need others, especially when it comes to facing life's burdens. Now, in Solomon's day, there's not cell phones or GPS. I was able to call Tracy, tell her what's going on, she could come home. That's not the case in the middle of the Judean wilderness. You traveled alone, and if you fell, you died in Solomon's time. And the point is, if you travel alone spiritually, you're going to die too. Adam needed Eve, Moses needed Aaron, David needed Jonathan. There were 12 tribes. Jesus chose 12 disciples. There's a plurality of elders in the church. There's a church of multitude. Even the Trinity has fellowship within itself. A person who isolates themselves has no one to help when they fall, and you will fall in a spiritual ditch. I see the principle all the time in counseling. A person faces a crisis, and they've been selfish and self-focused their entire Christian walk, and they have no one close to call on whenever they hit troubled waters. And so Satan is happy to provide a counselor for them. They don't serve, they come to church, receive, and then they leave. They don't connect with others. And then they say they feel disconnected as if it's someone else's fault that they didn't pull them in. Besides being selfish, Solomon says that's short-sighted because sooner or later in this fallen world, you're going to need a burden bearer and you have to cultivate one of those before you fall. You can't speed read your Bible for spirituality, and you can't develop deep relationships with shallow efforts. It's not possible, not even in the church. The relationships that really matter, the ones that will go over the bank for you to get you, are cultivated in the church while you're walking on the regular footpath, not after you're crying for help over the hill. All believers will come to your rescue if they can hear you. 
But sometimes you're so isolated that they don't even know that it has happened because you're not sharing your life. Solomon says better to develop a companion now while it's calm than frantically search for one once you fall. There won't be any. If this is you, if this is hitting home at all, let me, let me, let me tell you what to do. Number one, repent. An isolated person is self-focused, so repent of your selfishness. First thing that you do in any sin, and that's what this is, is to repent. The second thing, come to the next service available and come to all of them. You can't start the process that Solomon's talking about here um, unless you're around other people. And then three, initiate a conversation. You say, what do I say? Ask somebody about themselves. People love to talk about themselves. Just ask them a question about themselves. They'll tell you anything that you want to know. They'll, they'll let you listen as long. You've got to do is ask the first question, how's it going, how's John, how's Mary, how's the baby, and watch them take off. They'll, they'll talk. And then in that process, they may ask you how you're doing, and then that helps build. But do it in an interesting way. They may save your spiritual life one day. And in the meantime, they may help you fall keep you from falling to begin with. Number four, Solomon says, others are also better for, for sharing in life's journey. You go to verse 11. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Solomon gives another traveling illustration. What we think about, whatever we think about two people keeping warm in the bed is like the marriage bed, but, but that's not what Solomon's talking about here. Of course, that's, that's the case as well. Solomon gives another traveling instruction, and his point is it's hard to stay warm on a, on a cold night whenever you're, whenever you're alone. They didn't have electric blankets, or blankets, period, usually. And in the Judean wilderness, Galilean nights could be very chilly. And so travelers would sleep back to back and they would share the warmth of, of, of one another. And this is a proverb. So Solomon means to, to apply it metaphorically or spiritually as well. As we're traveling under the sun, it's better to do that with someone than alone because they can keep you warm. Or let me say it another way, some, a way that's probably very familiar to you. It's better when you're traveling under the sun to do that with someone because they can provoke you to love and good works. They can keep you warm spiritually. Solomon has already shown us life can be hard, but sharing that journey with others can make it easier. But now he says one of the ways that that can happen is, is their spiritual heat, somebody else's spiritual heat, can keep your fire going. I can remember many times whenever I would leave downtown Charleston, I would leave Anthem, and, and I, would, I would almost feel vexed, uh, just drugged down by the world. I, I, my, the majority of my time was spent with unbelievers, they used all types of, of language that, that, that were just hard to hear sometimes. Their, their perspectives on life were, were, were very different, depressing almost. 
I'd leave there drugged down by the world, and then I'd walk in the doors of the church on, on Wednesday night, and it felt like a sanctuary. You ever had that feeling? It was like, God's people, my people, that's what it felt like. One of the greatest tools that God has, has given us to combat spiritual coldness is the church. The world's still out there. But true friends that help keep you warm are in here. Don't neglect that. Don't be so self-focused and so isolated. I understand it's messy. I understand they hurt you. I understand that there are sinners inside just like there are sinners outside. And that's how you or why you have the gospel to be able to apply to that. Why their passage is about forgiveness and otherwise. But don't neglect them or you're going to, to get really cold in the world's night air. If you don't share your life with others, it won't feel like the church is a blessing and you won't get the benefit. I've grown cold many times in my Christian walk and felt the, the chill of dryness only to have another brother come and warm my bones with a fitting word of encouragement or, or even a rebuke. The world won't tell you the truth. They'll tell you whatever they want you to hear to get something out of you. That's not the case inside the church. This shouldn't be anything new to us. The Apostle Paul mentioned what he thought of fellow laborers, didn't he? You have a fellow laborer, somebody that you consider a Timothy? Well, look at what Paul says about an entire church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 or 3. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God our Father. Is that how you feel about your church family? If you don't, you probably need to look inward rather than, than outward around you. That's the first place that you would start. Paul gave thanks to God always whenever he thought about this church. Do you give thanks to God? Romans sixteen thirteen. I don't have it up there. Listen to what Paul says. Greek Priscilla and Aquila... My fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom I not only give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Do you have a Christian friend in your walk that, will, that you say, that brother or sister will risk their own neck for me, and you give God thanks for them? Well... Paul says there's nothing like the, the pain of betrayal. He felt that too, Demas. And he also says there's nothing like the joy of a foxhole friend. Paul had a son, Timothy, in the faith. Epaphroditus served Paul with fervor. Tychicus was a dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord. Christian in Pilgrim's Progress had companions named Faithful and Hopeful. John Bunyan said, Now I saw in my dream the, that Christian went not forth alone, but there was one whose name was Hopeful. May God fill our churches full of hopefuls. You need others to be effective. You need others for burdens. You need others to help you on the journey. And you, you need others to battle life's adversaries. 
Let me give you number five here. Look, if you would, at verse 12. Two are better than one. In verse 12, and if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. And a cord of three strands is not easily broken or quickly torn apart. It's probably a very familiar passage to you, isn't it? Two are better for battling life's adversaries. Solomon's final statement here is a sum, summary. You can see the progression. There's, there's a lonely miser. He gains and he has no one to share. He's purposeless in his gain. And he wakes up one day and says, what am I doing all this for? And the answer to that is start sharing with others. Then there are two that, that are good. And now he says, if that's true, three are even better. And after showing us the benefits of companionship that comes from another brother or sister, he now widens the, widens the scope, the blessing that comes from a community. Three, more. These are not just, you know, numbers in the sense of only three. And the example he starts with is obvious. A traveler is alone and he gets waylaid by robbers or marauders. He has no one to watch his back. He's alone. You're traveling in the... In the dark valley of the shadow of death. And there's no one to watch his back. His flank is vulnerable. And that's the way, sadly, that many Christians spend their walk. And it's not just dangerous, it can be deadly. The selfish and self-indulgent person thinks they do not need someone else. Or they convince themselves that no one loves them and everybody hates them and they have a pity party about it. And so they isolate themselves from other people too. And in the end, they can bring about their own demise. Think about it. The devil can pick off one of us pretty easily, but it's a little bit harder when you have another Christian brother there, right? Do you act different around other people? Well, I hope that's not a regular pattern of yours, because who you are is who you are alone before God. But you may you may think about somebody else whenever you're... Whenever you're there, there's, there's a, a minimization of temptation that happens whenever others are around. It's a harder time with two. He has an even more difficult time with three, and a whole church is hard for, for, him, for even him to defeat. The New Testament warns about this, this lonely traveler that's vulnerable to, to his adversaries. Look at First Peter chapter 5, at the New Testament admonition to this. Be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan's called an adversary. And we're to be aware, and we're to be alert. We're not to run around and splash him with holy water or... You know, talk to the devil and cast him out and those type of things. You're to be sober. You're to be alert. You're to be aware. Don't be ignorant of his devices. And Solomon says you need brothers and sisters to help you watch because you can't watch everywhere all at the same time. Your heart's deceitful. And if you don't have someone in your Christian life that has your back, it's probably because you won't turn yours to them. Now, what do I mean, what do I mean by that? I don't mean show them your back like walking away. I mean, trust them. You probably don't trust them enough to turn it. 
And if you don't do that, it's rooted in self-focus. Understand people can hurt you. People have hurt me. They hurt me all the time. They do. And I remind myself that Christ died for them, and I get up and I preach to them, and I love them in Jesus' name. And sometimes those hurts are very, very, very deep, and it, it can shake your trust. And so when that happens, you, you run back. But if you linger there, it's a, it's a sign of self-focus. Your fear and their hurt has become the bigger deal than what God has commanded you to do, and it's going to set you up for, for a fall. People don't have the kind of companion that Peter and Solomon are talking about, that Peter will talk about in a minute, for many reasons. But I think one of the common reasons is self-focused fear. At least that's the one I hear regularly. Fear of getting hurt. Fear of man. You don't want to get too close because you're afraid of what they'll think. Fear of them figuring out what God already knows about you. You're not as spiritual as you pretend to be. Fear of no longer of being the most important person in the room. Some people actually limit their peer group to, to, to inflate their perceived importance. Let me hit home a little bit more. Solomon can be describing the Christian who is only comfortable around other believers who hold their same opinions. If your only friends are... 30-somethings or 60-somethings or whatever the name is, whatever the, the, the age is. If your only friends are 30-somethings that go to homeschool co-op and have the same views about everything, you're likely not to grow much. It's the fallacy of the designer church. You're unhappy with this, whatever it, whatever it is, come over here, we're all doing it exactly the same and, and you'll enjoy it here. Well, guess what happens? When you get there, you don't enjoy it there either because the issue is not around you, the issue is in here. You will have a natural affinity for those who are like you. I'm not arguing against that. But you need more people than just people like you. The young need the old, vice versa. The weak need the strong, vice versa. It may not come, though, from self-focus. It may just be plain selfishness. You want others to be there for you, but you don't want to be there for them. I mean, I mean, I mean it, may be, it may not be really complicated. You view others as... You're a taker rather than a giver. And if you're trying to go it alone, you're on a midnight patrol in Afghanistan and the Taliban has night vision and you don't. You're vulnerable. And then you'll wonder why you fail or blame the church or blame God whenever you didn't open yourself up. Peter tells us, or Paul tells us, I should say Peter tells us, how to how we're supposed to do reconnaissance. Resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You resist adversaries, in this case the enemy, the devil, by a strong personal faith. You don't totally depend on others. You have a strong personal faith, and then you draw from the strength of, of other believers, the same experiences. Can you think of some other place where you've heard two or three being bound together? I hope so. Matthew 18, the words of Jesus himself. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am in the midst. This is not a verse to comfort us about a poorly attended prayer meeting. <laughs> What's the context? The Lord's point is how we help others when they fall into sin. This is the church discipline passage. 
If your brother sins, go to him. And if he won't listen to you alone, take two or three. And then the two or three is confirming the authority of, of Christ in the, in the Bible. And others in the body bring truth to bear in our lives. We speak the truth in love. The brethren watch out for us. They're examples to motivate us to suffer on and suffer well. They, they confirm the truth to us and bring clarity when we can't see well. A threefold cord is not easily broken. A church family is a barrier that's not easy to blow through. But Solomon ends with a situation where where it's not good to look to others. Two are better than, than one most of the time. Look at you at verse 13 through 16. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I've seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before him, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him. For this too is vanity and striving after the wind. Now, if there was ever a preacher's verse in Ecclesiastes, it's verse 13 through 15, but it applies to you as well. What's going on here? Solomon says companionship is better than isolation, but loving it too much can become idolatry. These passages about it's all about what happens if you love or crave that companionship too much. You put too much hope there. You put too much stock in people. Or it turns into a penchant for popularity. Now, verses 13 through 16 seems hard to follow, but let me help you out here. There, there are three contrasts. There's a poor a lad versus a king. There's a youth versus old. There's wise versus foolish. And if you were reading this in Solomon's day, you, you should immediately think, wait a minute, something's wrong. Look at verse 13. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old foolish king. That's not normal. The old king was the one who was supposed to be wise. Someone who is a poor youth would typically be foolish, so that should immediately catch your attention. But we're told why this king's foolish, verse 13. He's a king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. He refused to listen to advice. That's a sure sign of foolishness, especially from someone in a position of authority. Solomon says wisdom is not from gray hair always. It's from gray hair and two ears that continue to listen to counsel. That's what he says. So what's going on here? Well, you have a king who rose to power. This is the old king. But it's now become foolish. And he's replaced by a second lad who, who has this rags to riches story. He starts in prison and then he comes out. Everybody likes a story like that. He was, he was down and out and now he rises and they put him in power. And it's wonderful. Throngs of people are around the second lad who, who takes over for the wise, uh, for the, uh, for the foolish king. And then there's a, a revolving door of leaders. Look at verse 16. There's no end to all the people and all who were before them. And even the ones who will come after will not be happy with, with him. 
Solomon sees a young king that replaces the old one. He sees the same throng of people that lifted up the young king be replaced by another group with new opinions, and then out he goes. And the moral is, don't find your purpose in people or position, no matter how many fawn and follow, because no matter what you do, their opinions can change. This is the proverb, you can't please everyone, so don't try. Derek Kidner said, the new king has reached the pinnacle of human glory only to be stranded there. Famous fleeting, Solomon says. Popularity peters out. The glitter of glory fades. Crowdfunding turns to cancel culture. Elvis becomes Michael Jackson, who becomes Kanye, who becomes whoever is coming after him. Church members come and go. Pastors lead and leave. One day the politician is voted in on a wave and four years later they're voting him out. One Pharaoh and his people gave Joseph land and favor and the next group of people turn him into slaves. And while companionship is good, don't put your hope in people alone. Put it in God. He'll never leave you lacking for satisfaction. That's how Solomon ends. He balances here. And Solomon says if you place your ultimate hope in others or popularity, you're going to be very disappointed. And the best illustration of how to handle this, how to live this way, the Lord Jesus Himself provided us. He gives the right model. The focus of Christ's mission, He came to do the will of His Father, didn't He? And He set His face toward Jerusalem like a flint, regardless of what the crowd did, regardless of when his family came and said he was a lunatic, regardless of even when one of his closest disciples said, far be it from you, Lord, don't go to Jerusalem. That was Peter. Even when his own disciples tried to assuage him away, his target was obeying God and doing His will, and that target was fixed regardless of the prevailing winds that blew and regardless of who He had by His side and who fell and who rose. And that must be an anchor in your life as well, regardless of the relationships that you have. Two are better than one for all these things that Solomon has described, for purpose in life, to accomplish more, to assist you, to provoke you, to protect you. But they're not a replacement for God. And you don't take God's will from them because they're also frail and fleeting just like you. Solomon gives the conclusion of the whole matter at the end of the book. Fear God, keep His commandments, because He'll right the wrongs and straighten out the crooked. Work with one handful. And then one hand open and enjoy the good gifts that God has given. But don't be self-focused. Use that open hand to share. Pursue those relationships fully because two are better than one, but but don't put your hope there or think that you'll find ultimate fulfillment in people. They'll they'll let you down. Solomon says it's worth the pain. I want you to bow your heads.